Climate change is a global emergency. However, many countries in Asia are expected to see more extreme effects of rising temperatures and humidity than other regions. Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, and the whole Southeast Asia are likely to experience extreme increases in heat and humidity in the first half of this century. They will also face more frequent and stronger extreme weather events. Are companies operating in this region adequately prepared to face these risks? What opportunities climate mitigation and adaptation create for businesses and investors in the region? Welcome to Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. I'm Piotr Zembrowski. And I'm Bilja Arslan. This is the third episode in a five-episode series, Sheltered from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. In the first episode, we looked at the trade disruptions due to the COVID pandemic and the realignment of global supply chains. The second episode focused on the dominant role of China in Asia's economy and the effect its slowdown may have on the region. Today, we focus on climate change, on the risks that it presents to the economies in Asia, and on the business and investment opportunities that arise from climate mitigation and adaptation efforts. The podcast series is supported by Equities First, the opinions of our guests are their own and editorial control remains with Economist Impact. We have two guests today, both of whom have extensive experience in sustainability as well as investment analysis and management. Aurelia Breach is Director of Sustainable Finance and the Head of Climate Risk at Sustainable Fitch, an ESG ratings provider. Earlier, she was head of commodities research at Fitch Solutions and a commodities analyst at BMI Research. She joins us from Singapore. Aurelia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our second guest, Michelle Loy, is vice president for Asia Sustainable Finance at WWF Singapore. Prior to her current role, she was the APAC head of global risk solutions at BMI Mellon. And before that, she was an investment performance manager at Northern Trust. Michelle, we are glad to have you with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. With COP27 concluding just last month, climate change is again top of mind for policy planners. Its biggest outcome is the breakthrough agreement on a loss and damage fund. The fund will be used to compensate developing countries that are particularly vulnerable to adverse climate effects. The details still need to be worked out, but is there anything that we can already say about how it will affect Asia's economies? In regards to Asia-Pacific and the loss and damage deal, it is a historic deal. Um, really a ray of hope, a welcoming step, but it's really long overdue. It's been 30 years in the making. Really, countries should move faster to reduce emissions because without rapid and deep emissions cut, we cannot limit the scale of losses and damages. In Asia, seven out of the 10 countries that's been identified by IPCC are at risk of floods, extreme weather temperature rises. Um, but there are also other areas in which that it's very much connected to losses and damages around the climate finance and also adaptation, where climate finance is only currently at about 30% of the annual investment that's required. Public climate finance and driving wider financial system reform can catalyze more private finance for emerging and developing economies in our region so that they are able to meet the shared global goals. A couple more positive outcomes coming out of uh, COP27. The two 
new Just Energy Transition Partnerships, or the GETP, which are meant to accelerate coal-dependent emerging markets transitions away from coal. We've seen a new GETP for announced to help Indonesia retire early its coal assets. And there's been another one for Vietnam that is still in negotiation, but could be could amount to around 11 to 14 billion US dollar. And the other second positive outcome is the fact that the final agreement did mention nature-based solutions as an important tool to develop in order to uh, mitigate uh, the, the rise in temperatures. And that would be quite positive for emerging markets where you have many, plenty of opportunities to develop uh, nature-based solutions, whether it is uh, reforestation or um, just avoiding deforestation. And if I may, um, the JETP, the Just Energy Transition partnership that's really relevant for our region. Um, and I do very much agree on the nature-based solution element. Nature has absorbed about 54% of humanity's carbon dioxide emissions over the past 10 years. So it's good to see countries recognizing the importance of that. Um, and also at the same time, when we think about um, reduction of GHG emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, it needs to be packed together with action on nature. Very interesting insights. Uh, it seems like uh, there, there's some progress made at COP27 uh, regarding topics such as just transition, but you also both highlight that the urgency to address climate change and inadequacy of action. This is quite concerning because we know that Asia Pacific is um, highly vulnerable to climate change. Can we talk more specifically about some of the most pertinent risks to APAC economies? Almost every country will suffer directly or indirectly from physical climate risks and investors as well. Investors will need to be able to manage some level of physical risk in their portfolio, whatever that portfolio is, especially in APAC, which has been the region recording among the highest physical risk occurrence, a trend that is expected to continue in the coming decades, according to scientists. And I think in APAC, uh, scientists agree that some of the most Vulnerable countries to physical climate risk include Vietnam, Thailand, the Philippines, India and Australia. But no countries will be immune um, because, for example, the negative impact of droughts or heavy rains, uh, etc. on one country can have repercussions on supply chains, can have repercussions on the electricity supply of other countries. So it is a very worldwide issue. And our analysis have pointed to a growing number of sectors within the economy being negatively impacted by rising physical risks. Sectors from utilities, oil and gas, manufacturing, infrastructure, real estate, metals and mining are currently most more exposed because the assets have a very long lifespan. Uh, which uh, coincide with the projected rise in, in physical risks. And this can lead to disruptions in business operations or to supply chain, can lead to a loss or impairment of assets, which can eventually result in a loss of revenue or higher rebuilding costs, higher capital, and also higher operational expenditures. Um, it's also important to, to take note that the interactions between climate change, people and nature, it's the very basis of emerging risks that we see from climate change, ecosystem degradation, and also biodiversity loss. 
So aside from physical risk and transition risk, which are very well-known and prevalent, there are also ways in which physical risk could manifest through transmission pathways. So the traditional risk um, uh, that we typically hear about, credit risk, liquidity risk, you get market risk too as well. So for market risk, you will get severe and frequent weather events that could impact global supply chains and that could lead to inflation. Operational risk too as well, where physical risk could have a direct negative impact on firms' operation. Um, at the same time, there's also macroeconomic impacts through health and labour productivity being affected because of climate-induced natural disasters, water shortages, lower agriculture yields. There is one big element that's um, really coming to fore, which is the biodiversity or nature climate change risk, where nature loss and climate breakdown is very much connected. There are two sides of the same coin. The more the climate changes, the more biological diversity will be lost, which advances further climate change. Based on IPCC, the ongoing global warming will result in irreversible loss of coral reefs, biodiversity, habitat loss, and also increase in floods and droughts in Asia. Thank you. Aurelia, you mentioned earlier um, quite a big list of risks that businesses and economies in Southeast Asia or in the region um, will um, face. To what extent are businesses in the region prepared to face these risks? I would say there is a realization coming among businesses, among investors, that uh, climate will have a direct impact on our livelihoods, on business results, business revenues, and on investors' return. Depending on the country you look at, the realization is higher or lower. In in APAC, it is definitely much higher in markets such as Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, where you have regulations coming surrounding climate disclosure for corporates. Um, investors as well, I think over the past 18 months, have stepped up significantly to adapt their portfolios to climate change in very different ways. For example, one of the most uh, basic ways that many investors applied is to find ways to measure the vulnerability of their uh, of their investments, vulnerability to transition risks or physical risks, um, the methodologies, service providers to, to measure and to quantify um, those, those risks are rising, are improving uh, day by day, which, is pro- which provide a lot of help for either companies or investors to take those risks into account um, and quantify them uh, for their own business. If I may turn to you, Michelle, uh, ESG is a buzzword we are hearing a lot in this space. Uh, but what are your opinions on ESG? And does the ESG investment framework adequately reflect climate change risk according to and help protect investment portfolios against the risks? Well, that's a very timely question given what, what we've been seeing in the news the last couple of months. Um, really, ESG is a decision-making framework. It provides investors, banks, institutions, companies with guidance on areas of considerations. It helps organizations make more informed, better, and also more lasting value creation processes. It is seen also as a strategic lever to deliver long-term sustainable value, but relying on a framework is simply not sufficient. It's important to also supplement with good ESG data to help mitigate the risk and to also develop better risk management strategies for implementation. So you really need to have the data before you can produce matrix. However, you need the matrix before you can set targets. 
and allow you to measure progress as well to manage the risk. So while the framework is important as a starting point, you need data to help complement and supplement it. So since we are talking about ESG investment framework, um, I wonder what is the investor's perception of the relationship between ESG integration and investment performance? And to what extent does it affect investors' decisions? It used to be seen as a risk management approach only. But now there is also an additional view of upside in terms of opportunities. So when you think about managing risk to achieve investment performance, you need to have a good understanding of the materiality of the climate risk in terms of the holdings in your portfolio and also to the extent in which you know the transition and physical risk are being managed and integrated into the strategies of the investing companies. As Aurelia mentioned earlier, the importance of also carrying out scenario analysis, stress testing to take that forward-looking view because a lot of the results are just going to be historical data, but you need to plan and look ahead. And with the nature of climate change and biodiversity loss, those are long-term issues. So gone are those days that you take a short-termism view. You have to take a long-term view in terms of managing the portfolios. It's also important as well to engage with companies to understand how they are managing their risk over time. In my view, ESG integration creates adaptability because it's an opportunity for investors and companies to create resilient and sustainable companies, portfolios, which result in value or investment, increase in investment performance over a period of time. Thanks, Michelle. I wonder what are some of the efforts stakeholders such as private, public and non-profit sectors in the region are undertaking to mitigate climate risks and to help economies, societies and businesses adapt to the changing environment? And how are these actions having an impact uh, on investors' decisions? I would say for now, the main driver uh, for climate action is government policy and enforced government climate policy. Many, many governments around the world have made public pledges to reach net zero by either 2050 in, uh, in the developed world or maybe 2060 in China, 2070 in India. They have put together a nationally determined contribution, um, which usually sets into law uh, the climate targets. Um, and then the next step for authorities is to decide on sector-by-sector sector regulations, such as energy efficiency for buildings or for manufacturings or bans on the, sales, on the sale of traditional cars by a certain year. And then th- this leads to company action. So there will be a lot more attention on what the progress those companies have made against those targets and against th- those transition plans. And if I may add, Singapore really is taking leadership to to drive change in this aspect, where we've seen uh, multiple initiatives being launched. The Asia Climate Solutions Design Grant really is to drive blended finance to mobilize capital into high-impact target sectors that are significantly undercapitalized in Asia. And blended finance is a team that keeps coming up recently because you can't rely on just solely public finance. You need to rely on private finance as well. The Asian Development Bank has also issued a blue bond And so there's been a lot of focus on climate and biodiversity, but at the same time, the ocean aspects is really coming to fall too as well. They aim to catalyze sustainable ocean investments in the region and also to invest and provide technical assistance. Collaboration is a really, really big team that's coming up too as well, which we think it's very important, not just 
between the regulators within the region, but also with the private access and also philanthropy. It's a very important pool of money that hasn't been tapped on, where it's key to get a diverse set of actors coming together to accelerate action on climate change. We need to move from a competitive to a collaborative model, really a shift in business paradigm and also organization processes, because the entire ecosystem has to evolve together. No organization can advance or solve these issues and achieve impact alone. The podcast series Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty, is supported by Equities First, a word from our sponsor. Liquidity is one of the proven strategies to manage risks in financial markets in turbulence and uncertainties. Equities First is your solution for redefined financing. For close to 20 years, we provide access to capital in 33 equity markets at favorable terms, while our partners retain 100% upside in their assets. For more information, please visit equitiesfirst.com. To follow up on the private-public partnerships and blended finance that you just mentioned, how does that translate into opportunities for investors in the region? So there are different teams in which that could could underlie it. The most commonly talked about is nature-based solutions. You know, you can't solely rely on GHG emissions because you may get closer to where you want to on emissions. You may reach net zero um, in terms of measuring emissions, but you may potentially breach also other planetary boundaries um, in, in terms of water use, chemical and production, uh, pollution, I beg your pardon. So those need to come very much hand in hand. And so for investors, it's about setting uh, ambitious mitigation strategies, um, risk reduction through adaptation. There's also investment in innovation because a lot of these funds aim to drive innovation, find more cost-effective ways to, for example, monitor biodiversity and nature using remote sensing or AI to help monitor and measure forest cover, for, uh, for example. Yes, and it's, it's also linked to what you were just mentioning, Michelle, around Singapore. I was so impressed by the conference organized by the Monetary Authority of Singapore on blended finance. It was attended by hundreds of people, business persons from, from Singapore, so many people representing investors, banks. Uh, so there is definitely a lot of appetite for private investors to join those blended finance deals. Other potential opportunities for investors more on the sustainable finance side, there's a lot of innovation among banks that are facilitating those deals to come up with new types of, uh, of bonds to finance the, the transition to a lower carbon uh, economy. The, the market of nature-based solutions is made of hundreds, thousands of often small-scale projects in developing and even sometimes uh, the least developed uh, markets around the world. So in spite of this fragmentation, you are seeing established investors that are highly interested in developing those nature-based solutions and finding opportunities for that. Yeah, if I could quickly add to as well on nature-based solutions, um, projects and focus on reforestation, regenerative uh, agriculture, that's also really coming to the fore and it really goes to the point of ensuring also healthier diets for all and improving food security. And there's a lot of benefits in investing in nature-based solutions because they can deliver about a third of the global uh, GHG emissions reductions by 2050 while also being capital efficient. Um, and to a real point, a lot of it rests in emerging markets or uh, developing economies in our region too as well. That's very interesting because 
As Aurelia mentioned, even though there are some issues in the area right now uh, in terms of nature-based solutions, there is still some growing interest from the investors in the space. And we, you also mentioned that there is tech, for instance, climate change tech and nature-based solutions. So kind of two different buckets that investors can um, show more interest in. Um, are there any like differences or similarities of these uh, two areas? Climate tech is an um, area in which it's fast growing, both in the medium and long term. These trends are obviously also driven by the public sector as well, where the policy support is creating the en enabling environment for climate tech startup firms. And if you think about the use cases for climate tech, there are a couple. So investment portfolio monitoring is one where it helps to optimize workflows. Data traceability, where data sits in different um, sources and systems, how do you bring them together? All this fourth industrial revolution technology is contributing to a lot of the solutions that we are seeing. So for example, for AI, it gives investors a depth of sustainability information and insights that's derived from many alternative data sets from legal documents to social media posts. There's also the ability to look at forward-looking risk signals where traditional ESG data would not have been able to raise some of these alarm bells. Um, there's also, interestingly, satellite imagery, the ability to collect data for building and calibrating and improve on physical risk modeling. There's also remote sensing where um, the likes of eDNA, blockchain, smart devices um, are also coming to the fore with the ability to monitor ecosystem, human behavior, and various intervention. There is a lot of interest and very large need of financing in in the technologies that will reduce the the emissions from the heavy um, sectors, the hydrogen economy that could have applications across a number of sectors, including transport, including agriculture, including steel production, etc. If you reduce the not only the emissions but also the amount of raw materials needed to produce one ton of steel, it has a repercussion across the entire supply chain. We are likely going to see a lot more uh, recycling in the metal sector, in the textile sector, but there are also risks linked to all those strategies, right? Uh, many companies rely to an extreme extent on carbon credit, meaning uh, I will not reduce my emissions, but actually buy a bunch of usually low quality offsets um, to make some claims around net zero airlines. Some of the food and drink companies are heavily reliant on those offsets, while in fact, it doesn't mean that their products hasn't led to new emissions being emitted. It, it just means that they have offset the, the emissions of that product. And that's the case as well for uh, airlines. Those kind of communications could lead to some reputational risks in the future should there be questions asked around the actual credibility of those uh, carbon offsets. If you have a look at the science-based target initiative, they are aiming to have most companies limit the use of offsets uh, to 10% of their net zero targets. Um, so it means that many companies will need to actually work extremely hard to reduce their operational emissions uh, instead of relying overly on offsets. And if I may add, in terms of a mindset shift amongst the investors, um, that rebalancing of priorities and expectations needs to be there. Um, 
gone are the always of of financial analysis and investment analysis. Um, they need to be more inten- intentional, purposeful, and embracing the different layers of complexities, um, but also being very clear on what they are trying to achieve and improve. Um, be transparent, but also importantly, be nimble as well because the market evolves very quickly. Um, there's a lot of investor initiatives out there like Climate Action 100 Plus, um, UNPRI, the Principles of Responsible Investment, um, and also as well as uh, in the region, there's AIGCC, where um, it's the Asia Investor Group for Climate Change. Um, taking part in those working groups and, and initiatives, make your voice heard and contribute, be part of those working groups because collaboratively that the strength in numbers and that knowledge sharing um, and learning from each other in terms of best practices would um, help a lot of the managers, especially the smaller um, investors that we're speaking to, help gain the additional knowledge and also tap on the expertise of some of the bigger and larger investors um, who either have been in that field for some time or have um, the resources and capacity and expertise. This topic is obviously very, very broad and we could probably talk for hours. That's all we have time for today. Thank you, Aurelia and Michelle, for sharing your views and insights. And thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. Stay tuned for future episodes in the series Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. The series is supported by Equities First and is part of Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. If you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any work from Economist Impact, email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. Please make sure to subscribe so that you receive updates when new podcast episodes become available. From the editorial team at Economist Impact, thank you for listening.